Well, amen. Thank you, Wesley. Thank you for sharing so beautifully with us in song and preparing us for the word for this hour. It's a privilege to be with you again, and we have been fortunate uh, weather-wise and in so many other ways. We're alive, and we're, we're able to be here, so we're thankful for that, aren't we? And this is the Lord's Day. I want to be with the people of God as often as I possibly can, but especially on the Lord's Day. I want to be with the people of God. I trust that you're glad you're here. If you're not, get over it. Um, but I trust that you're glad. We're going to look at John's Gospel, chapter 1, and break into the reading at verse 29 and read through, I think, oh, verse 40 or so. Um, this covers second and third days of Jesus' manifestation. And before we get into the Word, I want to give you, which I'm sure for many of you will be something that you never thought you would hear at Camp Syker, but it's a grammar lesson. Let me give you a very brief grammar lesson. And you might be thinking to yourself, why did I get up and come in here this morning for a grammar lesson? I want to talk to you about one factor that we often overlook in grammar, but we must not overlook as we consider God's Word today. In this text, especially in John's writings, he not only is always writing in pressing present, but he is often using the definite article. We know that as the or the. All throughout his references to Jesus or to specific matters that pertain to all of us, he uses the definite article over and over again. We're going to read today his frequent use of the definite article. Now, the reason that we do that is for something to stand out, or we use that definite article as a means of recognizing, you know what I'm talking about, I know what I'm talking about, we're sharing the same thing. We also do that, we use the, the definite article, to cite that there is one of a kind, singularly different, exclusive. So be mindful of that as we think of what John is inspired to say in particular about Jesus. One of a kind. One of a kind. The one and only, singularly, sent to you and me. I hope we can take that in today as we look together at God's Word. Fairly lengthy reading. I'll keep you seated. Just stay awake for me, will you? Please stay awake for me. You might say, well, that's your problem. Well, I'll do my best as well. Let's join together. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he, who, he upon whom 
you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and said, and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. We'll stop the reading there. We've just looked at day two and day three in the diary of Jesus' manifestation. Jesus has traveled 90 miles, first of all, to be baptized by John. And it's interesting, frankly striking, that John says, I would not have recognized him. Now, we know that they are distant relatives. But the reason that they would not have known each other or he would not have known or recognized Jesus was because he had been out in the boondocks for a long time, and this is 90 miles away from where Jesus grew up. So this is really the first encounter, but it's interesting that their first, con uh, their first encounter is not uh, a family reunion. Their first encounter is an ordained and ordered moment that the Holy Spirit said, I want you to be prepared, John, that when you see the Holy Spirit like a dove lighting upon one, I want you to know that's, that is He. That is He. He is the one for whom we all look. Even John the Baptist declares that his calling was to simply identify the Messiah. You know, it's remarkable to me, and I'll just say this as an aside this morning, we think of grand individuals who model our faith. We must never forget John the Baptist. John had moments. He had opportunities to seize praise, to be the center figure. He could have even declared he was the Messiah. They were asking him, are you the Messiah? How many individuals today, if they were asked if they were the Messiah, would say, yeah, I think I am. John deflected that with clarity and said, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just here as one to be used in a way to identify who the real Messiah is. At that moment, John immediately begins to decrease. He immediately begins to diminish himself. I find that striking. I don't know about you, but in our puffed-up world, in our world that wants to bring attention chronically to itself, it's a pathology, by the way. It's a deep, 
gross pathology. John says, I must decrease. He is to increase. And he begins that in his actions immediately when he pinpoints who Jesus is. We've talked about that important little word, the, or the, as we refer to our grammar. It does indicate uniqueness, one-of-kindness, or singularity. And there are several places that we have just read where it surfaces in a profound way. Let me mention those before we go any further. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus has come with a purpose behind him and in front of him. He's moved by that. He is ever pressed because of that. He is always moving with a purpose in mind, and that purpose is to take away the sin of the world. Note that. He is also the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You know, John was the water guy, and I don't mean that tritely, but he knew his place. He was the water guy. Isn't it interesting how much import we put on water baptism and how little we emphasize the baptism that Jesus came applying to us? I just find that interesting. I mean, we have churches all over the place that they're heavy into water. I mean, they are really into water. We might be some of them. I mean, we are big into water. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But John says, I'm the water guy, but there's one coming after me who's preferred before me, and his baptism will be a baptism with Holy Spirit and fire. We talk so little about that baptism when John says it's a preferred one. Just an aside, and if you're heavy into water, you can just turn me off at this point if you want to. But I just want to say, we are big on that, but we forget the baptism that John said is greater than his own. Don't miss that. Then we have another instance of the direct statement of uniqueness the Son of God. And then the disciples who begin to follow Jesus declare to one another, you've got to come, see what I've seen, hear what I've heard. I have seen the Messiah, the Messiah. So the definite article is a distinguishing part of grammar. We shouldn't miss that here. Its use without question is undeniably asserting that we have in front of us an exclusive one. And I just want to say today, Jesus is like none other. Praise His name. Jesus is like none other. If you are ever encouraged to debate or to get into some kind of a conversation about one religion versus the other, one way that we can always respond, not in an attempt to win the argument, but always in the attempt to win a soul, we can remind them that in no other religion 
did anyone who was sent from God die for them but Jesus? Jesus is the exclusive one who died for us. He's not just the sent one. He is the one who becomes the sacrificing agent for the atonement of all the world's sin. Don't forget that, unlike any other that we could imagine. So I want to talk to you today about the one and only person. His name is Jesus. And I know you might think, well, I, th I think I know him. Well, good. Then we can talk about how well we know him because we ought to know him well, shouldn't we? Amen. Smile if you could. It would help. Amen. The singular person, the one and only, the one and only Jesus. You know, I've learned over the years that as much as we can know informationally, it never suffices for what we can know personally and who we can know personally. I learned a long time ago that what we can cram into our heads will only get us so much traction and so far. But ultimately, it is who we know. Do we know Him? Do we know Jesus? Well, here are some things that we should pay attention to today. He is, as John says twice, He is the Lamb of God. Now, these under His uh, audience and those with an earshot of him would have understood exactly what he was saying. He was saying something very, very profound. He was not saying one of, them, uh, uh, one of many lambs in the sacrificial system. He was not saying he may have his place here and there and may fit into the whole scheme of things and be kind of brought in and woven into the whole scheme. No, he is saying in an interruptive, almost a disruptive way, he is the only lamb. He's it. He is singularly and exclusively the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Unlike any other, praise His name, God has sent a Lamb in the form, incarnate form of His Son Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for you and for me. And there isn't any other like Him. Praise His name. So look at Him. Look upon Him. Look to Jesus. Fix your gaze on Him. Everything about Him, everything from Him, everything of Him matters to every one of us. I just want to thank God today for Jesus and praise His name for a more than adequate Lamb. He's more than adequate, and He is the Lamb of God because He's not from our working. We never would have appointed Him. We never would have selected Him. We never would have chosen Him. Prophecy tells us in Isaiah that He's not one that we would have picked out by looking at Him. I remember early in my ministry, this shows you some things that I had to learn. I remember preaching a message thinking, surely Jesus had to have such a regal appearance he had to stand out in a crowd so much that people would have followed him as they did. Oh, did I ever get that wrong? And later on, to that very congregation, I had to admit my error. I had to eat humble pie in my first congregational assignment. Probably have ever since as well. But I had to tell them I was wrong because he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. He was as plain as plain could be. He never stood out because of his appearance. But when he spoke, 
when he spoke. He spoke as one having authority, and individuals would have glommed on to what he said because he spoke differently than the scribes or the Pharisees. He spoke with an authority that resonated in their hearts and that the Holy Spirit could trigger in them as he does in us. God's talking to you. God is speaking to you. Isn't that good? We wouldn't have come up with a Jesus like God did, but He's God's property. He's sent to us by God's decree, by God's scheme. Thank God everything about Him pertains to you and me. He is the fulfillment of all lamb sacrifices, and especially the Paschal lamb, the liberating Paschal Passover lamb. He is the lamb who was sent by God, fully adequate, perfectly suited to become the one that would take away our sins. So the one and only person, the singular person, but he has a singular power, a singular power like none other. We might turn to all different kinds of voices. We might open our ears to a lot of different professed authorities. Back in her heyday, it might have been Oprah. Now perhaps it's Dr. Phil. Listen, I have folks in my church that I think listen more to Dr. Phil than they do to the gospel. That bothers me. It troubles me where we get our information and where we get our framework for life. It troubles me where we, where we think we find truth when it's not there at all. Bits and pieces, maybe. But Jesus alone, Jesus alone, one-of-a-kind Jesus, has a singular power that you and I better know and better be recipients of. He takes away the sin of the world. Amen. Praise His name forever. Notice that sin is singular here and not plural. There's a reason for that. First of all, it, it is expressing the fact that the whole world has a problem. The whole world, not just the Jews, but the whole world has a predictable problem. The predicament of the whole human race can be attached to and associated with sin. Sin. I know that that's a word that you don't hear much anymore. It's kind of been removed from our vocabulary. It's been removed even from the church's vocabulary in many respects. So I want to use a little bit of a different example to maybe help us think a little bit today. What if you went to a, a, an oncologist who decided cancer is too troubling of a word? That kind of a diagnosis sets people off. It's off-puttish. It makes them fear. It makes people run. So we're just not going to use that word anymore. We're not going to talk about cancer anymore. So we take it away from our vocabulary. Let me tell you something. They could do that. It would be stupid, but they could do that. And they could just say, mm, I don't hear that anymore. We don't say that anymore. People would still die from that disease, whether they had it in their vocabulary or not. We have become, sadly, even in our churches, we have, been, we have become dispensers of a theology of our own making, 
and we forget the fact that Jesus came for a singular purpose with a singular power, and that is to deal with our great predicament, the problem of sin. That's our issue. That's our need. I had a news piece come across my phone one day in the form of a text, and it broke my heart. It was, a, it was about a couple that I had the privilege of pastoring at one time, and also I had the privilege of going through premarital counseling with them and officiating their wedding. I thought they were doing well. In fact, they were both involved in ministry. But the text alarmed me that day and indicated that it appeared <clears throat> that their marriage was on the rocks. I was... I was taken aback. I was shocked. I was grieved. I had their contact information, so I sent a text message to both of them, and I was a little… I, I tried to do it gently, tactfully, because I wasn't sure I was getting all the right information. But I sent the message to both of them and indicated that I had heard some news that had concerned me and had grieved me. I trusted it wasn't true, but I want you to know if, if you need anything, if you want to talk to anyone, you can contact me. I didn't hear from them for about two or three days. Finally, I heard from the husband, and he simply responded, not ready to talk, it's too complicated, too complicated. Now, I understand how difficult messes can be. I understand how difficult it can be to get through what has become a very sticky wicket, so to speak. I get all of that. At the same time, I also look at this. The problem at its core, tearing up that which God calls good, the problem at its core is always traceable back to a central reality, and it is called sin. Sadly, the church has even forgotten the notion that we aren't, we aren't to marry for the short term. We're to marry for the long haul, and that God's grace is sufficient if both parties will agree God's grace is sufficient to keep our marriages what they ought to be. It's not that complicated. Now, sin will get its grip. Sin will have its tentacles. Sin will in, just bring all kinds of issues to play. And in that sense, it might be complicated, but it's always pretty clear the problem is always sin. Now, I may have to run faster than I'm able when we're done with this, but I just want to remind us, He came for the purpose with a singular power to take away sin. That word means to take up, lift up, raise, bear away, carry, take away, remove, destroy, even kill. He came, as 1 John 3 reminds us, He came to destroy the works of the devil, and He alone has the power to do so. Praise His name. Let's quit blunting the power that Jesus has to destroy the works of the devil. 
Let's quit giving the devil more clout than we give credibility to Jesus. Could we agree on that today? We give the devil way too much power by saying, look what he's done. And we lament ourselves into a mess. And we just think, woe is me. What, can ever, what good can ever come of all of this? Let's remember this. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Praise his name. He alone has this power. But it is power made possible because of a precious price he has paid. He has every right to come knocking on your heart and mine. He has every right to come and speak to us. And the Holy Spirit has every right to invade our lives and tell us who and what we need. He has every right to do that because he's paid a price for you and for me. You know, we're, we are really twice gods. Gods in the sense of God own, owning us. David said, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We think we're our own. We're not. It's he who has made us and not we ourselves. But second, and I believe more importantly, Jesus has purchased us with his own blood. What a precious price. He has the power because he has the price. Third, we have a singular problem. Every human being on the face of the earth, as they come into this life, has the same problem. We often scratch our heads and wonder, why, do, why does the world fight and why does the world fuss and why do kids in the nursery say, mine, mine, mine? Why do they take one another's toys? Why do they bite? Listen, I'm a pastor that has a daycare. I see it all. There's a wing of the church I stay away from. For one reason, they carry disease of all different kinds. I'm trying to stay well. No, I do visit with them, and I, I'm glad to see them, and I, I like to hear them talk to Pastor Jonathan. I enjoy that. But I'll tell you what, all you have to do is spend some time with them, and you realize you don't have to teach them you do not have to teach them to want what somebody else has. You do not have to teach them to steal. Did you realize that? You don't have to teach them to steal. I thought maybe there was a class for that. But you don't have to teach them to steal. In preschool, we're not telling them also how to lie. They pick it up quite naturally. They become very adept at it very quickly. Have you ever noticed that? Now, I know it's not your grandchildren. They're too sweet. I have three of them. And as cute and as sweet and as lovable as they are, I have pictures. We can look at them later. But I can tell you, my grandchildren were born with a sin problem. Get over it. How cute they might be, your grandchildren were born with the same problem that every human being has when they come into this world. We have a universal, unilateral problem. We're affected and infected by sin. We have a singular problem, the sin of the world. So it's not just that a few have this problem, so quarantine them, keep them away from everyone else. Everyone has this problem. Everyone. My goodness. So do you see that Jesus didn't just come to a few or just come for North America or just come for the elite? Jesus came on account of 
Everyone who ever lives has this problem that needs to be addressed. Boy, God knows what He's doing, doesn't He? He doesn't have to send Jesus at this time and then another sacrifice at another time. And as things prop up, ooh, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't expect that. I'll send this agent in and this work in and this formula here. No, He sent Jesus once because there's only one main central problem, and it is our sin problem. He uses the word sin in a singular sense also because it's more than just sinning. We don't just need forgiveness. It's not just that sins need to be forgiven, but the deep-rooted condition, its principal nature, needs to be addressed, which His atoning blood has made possible to do. Amen. God doesn't do half-baked jobs. He sends Jesus to do a full and complete job remedying us from the problem of the sin. So sin in its comprehensive nature, both its condition, its source, and its fruit or its actions, in every way, Jesus is the perfect, perfect answer to our singular problem. So the human problem is a sin problem. And it won't go away if we just stop talking about it. It simply will be unchecked and unbridled and uncurbed as we see today. So our problem, friends, and I'll just state this today. Don't want to get myself in trouble. Probably will. My wife's not here to help me. She usually tries to keep me out of trouble. But when she's not here, all bets are off. So I just... I just want you to know I could go rogue at any time. But I'll just tell you this. Even though these are issues, even though these are concerns, and I'm not diminishing them and I'm not speaking derogatorily about them, I'm just saying it's interesting what human beings diagnose as our problem. How frequently do we say our problem is poverty or our problem is poor education or our problem is a political issue, or our problem is plastic. Therefore, the answer is plant material burgers, no more straws, no more bottled water, more education, advanced AI, or a new form of government. Not one of those steps will ever address our critical need. Our critical need, our, our matter that needs to be addressed is our collective, successive, generational, global, universal human predicament, the sin. And only Jesus, only Jesus has the power to take it away. I'm glad that John didn't say that Jesus has power to kind of neutralize it. I'm glad he didn't say Jesus kind of is a vaccine. It might work for a year. Might work for two, we don't know. But you'll probably need a booster. Aren't you thankful that Jesus in his singular power is able to remove it, destroy it,
take it away from us through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. I thank God yet to this day that scriptures never changed. He is a God not of the halfway. He is a God of the whole way, dealing with what the devil did when he intruded in the first place, when he invaded in the first place, when he came in like a thief. God deals with him wholly, fully, thanks be unto God. And if he can't, he's not God. If God cannot deal with what the devil has done, if God cannot deal with that thoroughly, then really, who is greater in power? May we as a church be reminded of that very thing. That leaves us then with one thought as far as our response. And I appreciate Matt sharing at the end of services how God expects us to respond. We're reminded we need to respond. There is then only one fitting, one appropriate response. Follow Him. There's only one pursuit that makes sense. We can hear this and we can say, oh, wasn't that good? Let's go have lunch. If Jesus is indeed the one and only for our one and only deadly predicament, then we must pursue Him. We must go after Him. He's the answer. He's not a byproduct. He's not a sidecar. He's not something that we can have and just makes our life a little bit better while we're here. We need Him desperately. We're dead without Him. Do we get that? We can't treat Jesus as ancillary. We can't treat Him as something that is insignificant. He is primary. He is the one we need. We must pursue Him with all of our hearts. And that's what these disciples did. They went and told one another, we, we're on to something. We're on to something here. More than anything else, really, they're on to someone. Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. Now, they're going to debate later on, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I've, I've lived in places where people might have thought that. But they would soon learn He has the words of life. He alone can save us. He's the Messiah. He's the one. So I want to urge you today, there's only one one fitting pursuit of your life, regardless of ambition, regardless of your age. You might think, I have a whole life in front of me. Don't tell me what to do. Let me just say this. There's only one pursuit that counts, only one, only one. It shapes and it frames the rest of your life. There's only one pursuit that matters. Pursue Jesus. Pursue Him. He alone is the Son of God. Let's stand together. Father, in these moments, I know that these are good folks who are here. I don't know their hearts, but I know you, you put this on my heart today to present. I know that you put this on my heart today to preach. I wonder about those things sometimes, and I think, well, Surely these are people who have come apart to a place for a real reason, for a purpose. But Lord, you alone know our hearts. 
Maybe someone is wrestling with this pursuit. Maybe someone hasn't pursued as they should. But thank you, Jesus, that you're here, that you're with us, that you are accessible. You're inviting us to come. You're asking us to pursue you with all of our hearts. Help us in a moment like this. This is so appropriate. Help us in a moment like this just to say, I am going to follow Jesus. I'm going to pursue Jesus with all of my heart, for he is the one and only Messiah. He's the one and only Lamb. He's the one and only Son of God. He is the one for whom we look. Help us in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.